This is Meg Tilton at The 8 Cow Life, episode number 28, my interview with Nicole Van. This is The 8 Cow Life, a place where LDS women, and really any woman, can come to learn how every aspect of their life is beautiful and has purpose. A place to help you realize how important you are, and that this place we call Earth just wouldn't be the same without you. So sit back and take a breather in that unfolded laundry, and let's chat for a moment about your amazing life. Happy Monday, friends. I hope you all had a great weekend and that you are ready for this week. It's going to be awesome. We celebrated a birthday in our family this weekend, and that was really fun. I seem to be getting another cold, which I'm super bummed about, but I'm hoping to kind of stave that off. I'm hoping it's not the flu because, man, it has been going around. And knock on wood, it has not touched our family yet. So I'm hoping that we might escape that, but who knows? So anybody who out there has the flu or has been suffering from sickness, I'm so sorry, and I hope that you get over it soon. So I just wanted to make sure that you know that you need to sign up for my subscription on to get my emails with all the latest and greatest um, at the 8cowlife.com and that I will be sending you out emails every week and keeping you up to date on everything. Also make sure you check me out on Facebook because I do do Facebook Lives every week and I post other things there occasionally. So those are always fun. I do my Friday favorites on Facebook every Friday, usually around two o'clock when my baby goes down to sleep. So those are really fun. I like those. It's just kind of a little bit more of an insight into me and I think a better spot to share um, things about me if you want to know and to find, find out really cool tips. Like a lot of people, I did one on Tim Tams. If you don't know what it is, you got to go check it out on my Facebook Live, on my Facebook page at The 8 Cow Life. Okay, so you are in for a treat today, my friends, on the podcast. Today, I am interviewing Nicole Van, who is an acclaimed photographer and self-published author of eight fiction novels. She and her family, a little bit over a year ago, she and her husband decided to throw caution to the wind and moved their family to Scotland. Anybody else jealous? I'm so jealous. So during our chat, we talked about what it's like to um, independently move to another country, how her love for photography came about, and how her love for reading helped her process the death of her brother, which led to her taking the leap to starting writing her own books. If you are thinking about writing a book, you will want to listen to this podcast. She gives a lot of good insight on what that process is like. She also talks about what it's like to put your work out into the world, being self-published, and some good tips for making sure you don't burn out. The last part of the interview is my favorite because she talks about how she and her husband have worked together and divided the responsibilities in their home, something that seems to have been beneficial for both of them. The reason I decided to interview Nicole was because I think she truly lives her life on purpose. 
I learned a lot from talking with her and I hope you all enjoy and learn from her as well. I wanted to add that Nicole has been gracious enough to give me some of her photos to share with you as well as one of her books that will be given to anybody who is on my subscription list. So if you're on my email list by February 5th, you will automatically get one of her photos to be able to enjoy and you will be entered into a drawing to be able to choose one of her books that is your choice. It is a true gift, my friends, and I'm so grateful for her and her generosity in being able to give that to each of you. All right, let's turn to this wonderful interview. Okay, I am here today with Miss Nicole Van. How are you doing today, Nicole? I am doing well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. You are all the way in Scotland. I am in Scotland. I am. Yeah. And I'm very jealous. You know, very jealous. It's, Scotland is a good place to be. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I, I could try to downplay it and pretend like it isn't awesome, but it's pretty awesome. Okay. Well, that sold me enough. I'm, I'm already sold, but that resold it. Like I'll have to sell it to my husband now that we need to go there. So you live in Scotland. Give us a little um, other brief intro of yourself and who you are and... Well, I, um, I am Nicole. I am from, I'm originally from Utah. Uh, and we, I'm a writer. I'm a photographer. Uh, we've spent probably about 10 years being self-employed, both as, primarily as a photographer. Um, I started, I started into writing just a few years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. And we decided about this time last year, well, not this time last year, this time two years ago, that we would like to move overseas. And it took us about a year to get here. And now we're in Scotland, hopefully for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why did you decide that you wanted to move overseas? You know, that is, it's a really good question. The answer is actually, well, twofold. Um, first, we had, I think both my husband and I always felt like moving overseas was a goal. It was something that we really wanted to do. It was something that we felt was right for us. It was right for our, for our family. Uh, but it's a big choice and it involved a lot of sacrifice. It involved selling our home. It involved, um, selling about 80% of what we owned and you don't make Mm -hmm. that kind of decision lightly. It also meant taking, um, two teenage children as well as a, as an elementary school aged child uh, away from friends, away from family. And, uh, it, it was just, it was a difficult decision to make. We finally just hit a point, like I said, about two years ago where we realized we've been talking about doing this for oh gosh, probably 15 years, you know, and we finally hit a point where it was like kind of shut up or put up. Like we just neither needed to stop talking about it and stop telling people we're going to move overseas someday and, 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 you know, actually do it, or we just needed to stop talking about it. So, um, we we're, we're religious people. And so we had prayed about it and we, um, and just kind of was, we're trying to seek, um, you know, God's direction as well as to what we should do for our family. Cause we, feel like mm-hmm. we're religious people and we feel like God cares too. So mm-hmm. we, we had prayed about it and uh, we actually had initially decided no. We decided that we weren't going to do it. It was just too big of a risk and it was going to be too hard for our kids. And I just, I felt it just, yeah. Um, and we, we went with that for about a week. And then my husband came back to me and he's like, um, I think we need to pray again. I think we need to make a different decision. So, mm-hmm. so we prayed about it again and, and we felt really good about, about the decision. I think we got over our fears and, uh, and we just decided to go for it. I, I think one of the biggest deciding factors, um, we asked ourselves the question, what kind of memories do we want 10 years from now? Um, mm-hmm. And and we both, uh, for my husband and I, our answer was we want memories of living overseas with our kids. 
We want uh, memories of having taken a risk. We want memories of having lived outside of, of sort of this protective bubble of family and friends, which it's been interesting. Um, I don't think I realized, I think I took a lot for granted. Um, and I knew mm -hmm. that that would happen moving overseas. I knew that I would realize I took a lot for granted. Um, but at the same time, I have found new communities and new people and new friends. And that's also been just absolutely fantastic. So, and you can't have both, you know, you can't have mm -hmm. both of them at the same time. Um, so I, I hope that family and friends are still in, still in Utah and in the States when we decide to return home. Um, but I'll have mm -hmm. fantastic friends here in Scotland too. So. Yeah. How long do you plan on staying in Scotland? You know, um, as long as humanly possible. No, I don't know. Um, right now we're here through another year. Our visa lasts for another year. Um, we hope to be able to extend, uh, our visa beyond that. Uh, that was, it's kind of a, topic of discussion in our household quite a bit. Um, ideally, mm -hmm. uh, if we could uh, extend to stay five years, then we could apply for what's essentially a green card, um, mm -hmm. the, the British equivalent of a green card. And, and then from that point, we could be here for a very long time. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So it looks like you might have plans of living there forever. Forever, you, know, you just don't know. Forever, I don't know. I really don't know. I will say that um, we were here probably a month because we moved about this time last year. Um, mm -hmm. We were here for about a month and I literally had the thought over and over that I could live the next 20 years here. Like it's just, it's just fantastic. You know, there really mm -hmm. is very little not to love uh, about Scotland. So it's wonderful. Yeah. So what do you love about Scotland? What do you love about Scotland? What do you miss about the United States? You know, it's really funny. Someone actually, um, a friend, a Scottish friend asked us this question a few months ago. And my husband and I turned and looked at each other and we stared at each other for a really long time trying to think of what we missed about home a ton, <laughs> aside from mm -hmm. people. Um, I, I miss my family and friends, obviously. That goes without saying. Um, but beyond that, I really, I really can't say that I miss a whole lot. I I will say that life tends to be easier in the United States, uh, meaning that mm -hmm. it's easier to solve problems. It's easier. Just everything is just easier. It's easier to find things. Um, I, mm -hmm. you know, I, we, we, we keep Amazon in business here just because like my husband needs a specific kind of battery to go into this appliance where the battery just died. And I'm going to tell you right now, I could spend two days driving through stores. Um, we live in Dundee, Scotland, or just outside Dundee, Scotland, which is about an hour north mm -hmm. of Edinburgh. And um, I could spend hours driving between here and mm -hmm. Edinburgh trying to find a stupid battery that would fit this, just going to store after store after store after store. Um, whereas in the States, mm -hmm. I think I would know pretty fast that if I went to you know Best Buy or Walmart, probably, um, they would have what I needed immediately. So, um, mm -hmm. oh my gosh. So we live in the country, right? So here's my story. We live in the country and we have this, it's a fantastic house. I love this house. It's this big rambling medieval barn conversion. Um, but the mm -hmm. problem is you heard the big rambling medieval barn conversion part um, that comes with the downside, which is I'm surrounded by acres and acres of fields, which means mice. We just constantly have mice in our house and they're cats. Mm -hmm. Like there's just nothing we can do to keep them out. So, um, Try to find a mouse trap though at a store. Like, that's hilarious. I know, right? <laughs> Hello, people. You live in Scotland. There are mice everywhere, and um, we must have driven around to eight different stores one day just trying to find a stupid mouse trap. And like, the one store that would have had a mouse trap was open for like three hours, 
And of course, I didn't mm-hmm. happen to go to the store during those three hours that it was open. So um, mm-hmm. just things like that, where you're like, this should be a simple problem to solve people, but it just isn't. But um, but aside mm-hmm. from that, there's very little. Um, it's been interesting getting used to new systems, um, like the fact that like the way their heating systems work and the electrical systems work and the way that you pay your taxes and the way you um, just deal deal with all of that is different. And mm-hmm. so I feel like I've crammed, like, you know, that learning curve when you first graduate high school in the States and you're trying to establish your credit and you're trying to like learn how to like learn how to adult, like basically, I mm-hmm. feel like I have compressed and, and it's baby steps when you're 16 and to 18 right. in the States and you slowly mm-hmm. go through college and then you slowly get a mortgage and you slowly kind of work through it. And I feel like I've taken mm-hmm. all that learning and compressed it into like three months. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's been challenging. But, um, there's another book topic for you, right? How to live in Scotland, how How to to be an American citizen living in Scotland. You know, it's very (laughs) true. Like just where to find things. Like I find myself, there are some forums and stuff. And so I find myself getting online and just asking stupid questions. Like if I needed to buy X, what store should I go to? You know? And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so things, things like that have been difficult, but I'm still trying to find a, a really good hairstylist. Like you think that that would be simple, but and not just for me, but for yeah. my kids. Like after, I just I'm just waiting. Somebody I'm gonna find them, or my boys don't come over here. And I'm like, ah, wow, that is no better, not an improvement, you know. But actually, I had a friend and a friend who lived in London for a while, and she said she eventually just taught herself how to cut hair because she couldn't ever yeah. find a place to cut that would cut her husband and her son's hair well. I don't think I'm quite that motivated, but I that's hilarious. So that is hilarious. Anyway. Well, you ended up in Scotland because yeah. you are in a position where you can make money, right? Yes. Out, not have like a office job that you have to go to every yeah. day. Yeah. So you are a, um, as I said in the introduction, that you are an author of eight fiction novels, yeah. which I think is amazing. And you're an acclaimed photographer. And I've seen your pictures. They're absolutely beautiful. Thank you. But when did you know that you really were the artistic type and you wanted to be an artist and that you wanted to use this avenue to provide revenue for your family? And Well, you know, the providing revenue part, I think, didn't come till much later. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I obviously have always had an interest in, in art uh, my, from a very early age. I can't say that. I, I think I thought I it was romantic. I loved the idea of being an artist. I don't think that I ever actually thought that I would be. I will say um, I, lo- I love art history. I love paintings. I love sculpture. As a, as a kid growing up, uh, my dad is actually a painter, um, a hobbyist, mm-hmm. but he, he does good work. He does landscapes and stuff. Um, but I don't have the painting gene. Like somehow that missed me. There There is a disconnect between my head and my hand. Uh, and I honestly like craft crafts of any kind are are horrific for me. Uh, my handwriting mm-hmm. is atrocious. In fact, I, I actually taught myself calligraphy because I wanted to be able to write something that wasn't just absolutely ugly. And you should have heard how hard my mom laughed when I told her I was teaching myself calligraphy because she thought that was hilarious that <laughs> I could even attempt to do something like that because I was such a klutz with things like that. So from that point, I felt like it was kind of always a tragedy that I didn't, I had all this artistic, artisticness inside of me, but didn't really have an outlet for it. Uh, I studied art history. Um, that was actually my undergraduate degree. It was uh, humanities with 
uh, minor in art history. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was just my, like, it, you know how you are when you're young and everything's just so emotional and it's so tragic. And it was like the big tragedy mm-hmm. of my life that I could see a scene and I could see exactly how I wanted to capture it, like to paint it, but I had no ability to actually paint it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when we fast forward uh, through grad school, I actually went, I actually did uh, English in grad school because art history is fantastic as an undergraduate degree, but fairly useless in the real world um, mm-hmm. when it comes to companies and paying jobs. Uh, and then about 2003, I think, 2002, 2003, right about the point mm-hmm. that the price of um, DSLRs dropped under $1,000. Uh, my husband and I pulled our we, we we pulled all of our like Christmas money and birthday money for the whole year, and we bought ourselves a DSLR. And I just mm-hmm. fell in love with photography. I had never really my husband was always a photographer before that, and he had brought a pretty nice camera, like a film camera, into our marriage. But I never really mm-hmm. bothered to take the time. Like I'd always pass the camera to him to take the picture because he was the photographer. And and then we got this DSLR, and I was home with two little kids, and I was I was teaching part time. Um, at the university in English, but I had some spare time on my hands and I just fell in love. I picked up that camera and it was like, oh, this is where it's at. Like just this moment of intense click where I, Mm -hmm. a talent I hadn't even really realized I had and all of a sudden I could capture the world um, in the ways that I'd always envisioned it. And it just Mm -hmm. exploded from there. I I started, it's the same story, I think the most, I'm a family and wedding photographer and most Mm -hmm. family wedding photographers have the same story, which is you start by taking pictures of your own kids and then it blossoms taking pictures of your friends, kids. And before long, you have people you don't even know calling you. And then you realize you probably have to start charging for this because it's taking up a lot of your time. And, Mm -hmm. and so by 2007, um, I had a pretty strong business going, um, in photography and it just went from there. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, is that business still uh, really thriving? Are you still, because you now you're kind of turned to writing books, and I know that you have used your photography, but where is your photography now in, this, in what stage is it at? You know, that's a really good question. I uh, currently, I can uh, do photography sessions here in Scotland. The visa we are on does allow me to work. Um, I've been doing a few here, not a lot, mostly because it's winter and we get like, honestly, like four hours of daylight a day. Um, mm-hmm. So I just kind of live in the dark. Uh, we'll see how, if that changes. I do know um, I still get in- inquiries from the States. Um, I had one just yesterday about a wedding. I, 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 I've i been turning them down. Uh, when we were home over the summer for a month or six weeks, and I think I did 17 or 18 sessions in mm-hmm. those couple weeks that we were home. So I, I still take, I'm still actively taking on um wedding projects. And if anybody wanted to fly to Europe and was interested in a session, I would love to meet with you. But um, <laughs> that's how I'm going to get my husband and my whole family there. We have to go have Nicole take our pictures. You really, right? you really should. Oh, my goodness. And Scotland is just like, oh, and the oh, anyway. Yeah. And it's shooting here is fantastic. The light's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Everything's really it's great. When, when you have daylight, mm-hmm. come in the summer, don't come in the winter <laughs> when it's <Okay>. so dark. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Okay, awesome. So you were doing the photography, but then you knew that you wanted to write books. How long did you know that you wanted to write? You know, I, I, to be honest with you, I actually hadn't really um, considered jumping in back into creative writing. Um, As I said, I did my graduate work in English, but I was uh, rhetoric and composition is what it's called. 
uh, was the was the subcategory of English that I did my degree in, which basically is technical writing. And I taught technical technical writing uh, for about ten years at the university level. And so I've done a lot, and I, I've done I've written manuals for photography and things as well. So I've done a lot of technical writing. I had not, however, done any serious creative writing probably since I was a teenager. Uh, and it's it's it, it's an interesting it's it's a two prong story. Um, one of the catalysts for moving to writing was we had talked about moving overseas and I knew we needed a mm -hmm. more steady source of income if we were going to do that. Photography, I knew, would be difficult to reestablish overseas just because attitudes mm -hmm. are different toward photography in Europe. Uh, there's not as big a market, I would think. Uh, in the States, most people will have a professional family photograph done, if not every year, at least every three or four years. In Europe, mm -hmm. um, especially, I would say here in Scotland, it's very atypical. Most families would only have a photograph done maybe once or twice ever. And, um, you know, hiring wedding photography is sort of hit and miss as well, I think. So uh, I knew that I needed another source of income and uh, writing seemed a natural jump for me. Um, mm -hmm. However, I wasn't really, um, I don't say that interested, but it wasn't really something that I had always necessarily seen myself doing. Uh, and in fact, I went a lot of years without reading. I went, I, I used to joke that I was a member of RA Readers Anonymous. So I was like a recovering reader <laughs> addict uh, because I have uh -huh. this terrible, because I love to read. And and I, I have a really hard time, especially when I was younger, separating my reading um, habits from my like daily life habits. And so I would tend to mm -hmm. neglect my children if I had a really good book to read. And so I just found it was better just to never start reading books because I would just mm -hmm. neglect everything else that needed to be done. And so I just had to like, I'd allow myself to read a few and I would wait till I had a good break where I knew I could read one. But um, but I didn't I didn't really read a whole lot. Um, and then in 2012, um, the brother just younger than me was killed in a car accident um, and it was devastating. It was unexpected. And uh, in in just through a lot of months of just grief and sadness and, and quite frankly, some depression, as is typical when you're dealing with a, a unexpected loss like that. Um, I turned back to reading. I just found myself reading again because it was a way to escape and it was a way to kind of process um, you know, a lot of that grief. And mm -hmm. it, that just kind of spiraled from that point. Um, I started thinking more and more about writing because I was reading again. Um, and you know how it is. I think most writers end up writing because they read something and they're like, oh, I should have ended blah, blah, blah. You're like, you get upset over choices that the author made. And, mm -hmm. um, and that was definitely what happened with me. I just decided that no, I, I could do this. I could write this. And it just kind of went from that point. Right. So you've written eight fiction novels, right? Yes. You have one in the series called the series is the house of Oak. Uh huh. And, uh, the first one in that series is intertwined, correct? Yes, it is. Okay. So how long did it take you? Like, when did you get that idea? And then how long did it take you to write that first book? And has it gotten easier as you've gone along? Oh my, it has gotten so much easier. To anyone out there that is mm -hmm. interested in writing, just you got, you have to start. It gets easier as you go along. Um, as far as starting Intertwine, um, the idea for it came, it, it actually happened fairly quickly, uh, mostly because unlike a lot of other uh, writers, I didn't necessarily have a steady day job. I was just working as a photographer and you have, the photography is sort of on and off as far as how busy you are. 
mm-hmm. it started actually I don't I know exactly when it started it started in May of 2013 I want to say um, my husband and I we had had scheduled uh, a huge we, we do photography training um, where we basically hold our own photography workshops where people will fly in to receive training on lighting techniques and shooting techniques and that sort of thing. And we were mm-hmm. holding one in France at the time in 2013 and we had rented. Oh, it was so amazing. Anyway, we had rented this huge chateau, like I think like Pemberley from Pride and Prejudice in like French. Mm-hmm. And we had rented the whole thing for this workshop and we had everyone staying with us. It was unbelievable. So cool. So mm-hmm. we're, we're staying in this chateau and um, we're sleeping in like the old big bed in the middle of the chateau with like the canopy and everything. And, mm-hmm. and I, I laid there just thinking, what would it be like if you woke up and you were suddenly in the past? Like, mm-hmm. what would, like, how cool would that be? Um, and then, if, but then I realized, no, it wouldn't be that cool because you'd be so freaked out about being in the past and the fact that you were so far away from home that you wouldn't really even have a mm-hmm. chance to enjoy it. You would just mostly, mostly be panicked about needing to return to your own time because as awesome mm-hmm. as like, you know, 1810 is nobody, I think wants to live there. Most, most of us would like to visit for like, right. and then come back. Right. So, um, so that's how Intertwine was born. Um, it was, it kind of came out of that, out of like thinking through what would happen if you ended up in the past, but had no memory of the future. Like you didn't know mm-hmm. where you were from and how, what things would, would feel familiar and what things would feel different. Um, I didn't start really, I, I kind of, I think, thought about the book for maybe six months. I didn't really start writing it, I think, until about October or November. Um, mm-hmm. And then I just kind of devoted, devoted quite a bit of energy to it uh, over Christmas um, I think we published it spring of um, 2014, I think was when it came out. So yeah, that's incredible. I mean, is that I, I don't write books. I'm not <laughs> a writer. I mean, what is typical for most writers? Is that like that seems really short to me? Oh, you're kind. Um, you know, it really depends on the author. Some authors uh, will will make me look like a turtle. Um, they will crank out mm-hmm. a well-written book every three months and that to me is mind-boggling um i think some authors it will take them a year to two years to create a book it really depends on the author and the writing process uh for me typical is about four months um that tends to be about how long it currently takes me um to go from outlining to to a published draft of the book assuming that i don't have any big upheavals in the middle of that um this past year it took me (laughs) it took me 10 months to get a book out but that's because i moved Mm -hmm. four times in those 10 months and that was don't do that yeah (laughs) ridiculous yeah it's amazing Um, what you are capable of doing so when you wrote the house of oak series did you know the ending did you know how book five would end and did you know all of the books along the way or did it just kind of come as you wrote intertwined and then kind of moved on from there you know it kind of came as i went um i think that with all and even if i had had an idea of where i wanted it to end it changes i think as you go uh, with my second mm-hmm. series uh the brothers maldetti i I had a pretty good idea of where I wanted it to end when I started. Um, and it, that's totally been thrown out the window. It's nowhere. It doesn't even resemble where I had started initially, but I love where it's gone. So it's, it's been fine. Um, mm-hmm. With the house of Oak, I, I really don't know that I did. I think I was just starting with intertwine and I knew I wanted to move on to uh, the second book uh, pretty quickly with, with house of Oak. Uh, from there, I wasn't really quite sure. Um, the final book, well, not the final book, the fourth book, features uh, 
two very, very opposite characters. And the, the, the hero in the fourth book was actually the villain in the first two or three books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was sort of a, a bit of a redemption story. And I did know that I wanted to redeem him, I would say, by the time I started the second book. But mm-hmm. yeah, it changes. I think even if you have an idea of what you want something to be, it's interesting how characters a lot will drive your decisions uh, in that I may mm-hmm. want a character to be XYZ sort of way, but um, but in order to be true to how you've created them as a person, sometimes it just doesn't work, if that makes mm-hmm. sense in an odd sort of way. Yeah. So when you create a character, do you create like a huge outline for them and like who they are and what they look like and their total personality in your head before you start writing? Or does that kind of come as you write? You know, I do a lot of it before I start writing. Um, I do. And it, when I first started, I said with the first three books, I would um, I'd have this huge questionnaire that had all these questions that you would like interview your character to kind of help you understand them. And they, you know, it's like like any sort of like get to know you party questions that you would encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did that for the first couple books. Um, and then I realized it wasn't really helpful and it was just a lot of time. Uh, and mm-hmm. I just kind of basically would start, um, I would think about the character. I would write a couple of, I write a couple of paragraphs outlining what they look like, uh, mostly just for reference because you tend to forget after a while, like, wait, how tall mm-hmm. did they say she was again? Um, and so you have to go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that, um, I, I, you, you would find out a lot about the characters once you start having them talk for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can outline the character a little bit, but I realized that a lot of pre-writing on the character wasn't really helpful. What I need to do is get the characters talking. Uh, and so a lot of times mm-hmm. I'll just begin by drafting dialogue uh, between mm-hmm. characters. And by that, you and I discover a lot about the characters as I write um, that, mm-hmm. oh, well, duh, of course she would have this quirk because she's interested in this and this and that. And I just hadn't made that connection until I started writing and then your brain connects it for mm-hmm. you as you go. So mm-hmm. kind of a mixture for do me. You, yeah. Do you feel like your characters are friends? Of, of me personally? Yeah. Yeah. Like not like, not in real life, but like, oh like, yeah, this is my character that I created. Like it's my friend. It's so true. Some of them, I think you're more attached to than others. Um, but no, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there are definitely characters that, that I'm like, I would love to meet that character or this character. They're, they're ones I think you get more attached to than others that I'm like sad to, to sort of leave behind, so to speak, as you move on to the next to the next book. I can see the attraction. I can see why authors will just start a series and use the same two characters repeatedly book after book because it does become easier to write each book the more you learn the character. I feel like, especially when you start a new series, I feel like I spend the first... 200 pages of writing just trying to learn the characters and learn the series and learn kind of what I want it to be which sounds silly because it, I'm making it up I shouldn't have to learn it but it's mm-hmm. kind of a reciprocal sort of thing where you're kind of settling into a groove I guess mm-hmm. wouldn't that be cool if someday we find out that all the books that we've been writing there they really exist in some all you know right? alternate reality <laughs> I've, I've thought that so many times I'm like how would that be that would be creepy but really awesome all at the same time yeah sometimes it would be awful because there's some pretty awful books out there but I know right it would be really cool right so so when you write a book um you were saying one took you 10 months like when you sit down when you're writing a book how many hours a day do you dedicate usually you know I actually Mm -hmm. ooh, actual writing time each day is maybe only five or six hours 
Uh, however, I do usually end up spending, especially when I'm actually in the drafting phase, maybe even eight to 12 hours a day in front of my computer, just writing. It depends on, on what kind of a groove I get into. Uh, experienced authors, people who've been writing for a while, um, know that you have an optimum amount of time that you can devote. Like your brain can only focus for so long. So you have mm-hmm. to you focus for like 45 minutes, and then you have to walk and take a break for 20 and then you have to go back. And if you're good, then you'll start pacing yourself. Um, as you mm-hmm. do it, I'm, as with anything else, you can have healthy writing habits or less, say less healthy, less effective writing habits. Playing hours of solitaire and avoiding thinking about the writing is not a healthy habit. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's not helpful. Um, and so you have to, right? Um, you have to find ways to move past that and to like force yourself mm-hmm. to be like, okay, I'm going to focus. And then it's like, it's like dieting. I'm going to focus really hard and then I'm going to get a treat and then I'm going to focus really hard and then not actually mm-hmm. getting a treat of eating, but like my treat is I'm going to go for a walk or my treat is I'm going to be able to, you know, replay 10 minutes of solitaire. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. just different mm-hmm. things throughout the day to kind of keep me going. So that's interesting that you bring that up, that you avoid writing. Why do you avoid it sometimes? Why do authors avoid it? Like you were saying, just play hours of solitaire. You know, I think part of it is because it's it's emotionally, like not emotionally, it's mentally taxing. Uh, mm-hmm. And you have to kind of psych yourself up for it. Uh, it's also it's also exhausting, uh, like anything else. If you're focused on it for a long period of time, it can be difficult. Um, I think part of the time, it, it's interesting. I, I don't. I, I feel like I, I'll hit a point maybe where this stops being true. But they, there's always this talk about writer's block and you know an inability to like. I just don't know what I want to write about. And honestly, mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's such a. I really don't think there's any such thing as writer's block. I think that that's a term we use to label uh, emotion like burnout, emotional fatigue, uh, mm-hmm. and also a term we use uh, for a lack of pre-writing. If you, if you don't know what to say, but you feel motivated to say something, like so you're not, it's not burnout, then you probably just mm-hmm. haven't thought enough about what you want to say. And you need to go back to organization and pre-writing and thinking about what, your pl- want, what, what you want your plot to be or do some more research or something. So mm-hmm. I, I hit that point today. For example, I, I'm writing a pre-story. It's like a a book zero for my brother's mal daddy and mm-hmm. it involved me having to include some things about galileo well i don't i know some about galileo but i'm not brilliant and i sat there just staring for like a half an hour going uh they're supposed to have a conversation about galileo i don't even know dang it and i was like i'm gonna have to go to wikipedia and i'm gonna have to go visit this site and that site and do a bunch of reading and i eventually mm-hmm. just kind of flubbed my way through it with like place notes another hint just flub your way through it leave a place note saying find something awesome about Galileo here and then just keep writing. (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just things like that. I think will bog you. Yeah. That's interesting because you're writing kind of historical fiction. Yes. Right. In a way. So how much research did you have to do? Um, what is the brother's mal daddy about? I don't know exactly what that is about. So the brother's mal daddy, um, it's, it's an interesting, it's, I love the brother's mal daddy. It's like, Anyway, it's awesome. Um, it's, it follows three brothers. They're Italian-American. It's, um, most of the books are set in Florence, Italy. And I lived in Florence for a couple of years. Uh, so it's definitely something that's close to my heart. The basic premise, it's, it's paranormal romance, which I love paranormal. So these three brothers, uh, they have what's called like a family gift. It's a family gift of second sight. Um, and mm-hmm. their father and their father's father and all through history have had this gift of second sight. The problem is this gift of second sight um, becomes worse with each passing year uh, until mm-hmm. uh, historically each member, each male member of the family 
uh, would usually choose to end their life in some way because the gift, this gift was just so overwhelming because they could see the future and hear the past. And it just was this cacophony of sight and sound. And so then you have these brothers, they're triplets. And so when they were born, this gift, instead of each one of them getting the gift, the gift itself kind of fractured. So each brother got a portion mm -hmm. of it. And so the, the stories are, they're romances basically following each brother's love story but it also has an overarching story about this gift that they have and how it changes and is morphing and, and, and altering um, with the brothers in each year that passes. So um, it's, it's an interesting kind of storyline there. Yeah, and what is the time period that that's set in? Because your House of Oak series is modern time and yeah. in the 1800s, right? Because it's kind of like a back to the future type it, of a... So is the brothers Maldaddy like that? Where what is the time period that it's set in? You know, it's similar-ish. Um, I wanted to keep books that were fairly similar, um, just because the House of Oak deals with modern as well as um, Regency era. So about two hundred years in the past, about eighteen hundred to eighteen fifteen. Um, mm -hmm. And the brothers Maldaddy started out following that pretty closely. So it's modern, and these brothers are living in modern Florence. Uh, and you have these tie-ins. The first one in particular um, ties into another story that's occurring in uh, about 1817 in Florence, um, which is right after Napoleon um, left Florence. And so you kind of have this post-Napoleonic war, uh, Florence, Italy, that I did have to do quite a bit of research um, to kind of understand what Florence was like in 1817. Uh, the mm -hmm. next book um, includes some of that as well. Um, so each book does include, I think, kind of a Regency era, kind of 1815-ish tie-in. The last book, though, I'm the one I've been working on currently uh, is pretty much just straight modern. It doesn't really have any tie-in much at all to the past necessarily. It just was too hard to keep to keep working that, trying to find ways to work that trope into each and every book. So I just gave it up mm -hmm. by the time I did the fourth one and just kind of went with what the story needed to be, not with some artificial you know, 1815 tie in with it. So it's, I would say they're more paranormal modern than anything else, so. And you have three in the in that series, The Brothers Maldaddy. Are you gonna go to five again, like you did with The House of Oak, or you know, what do you think? I don't know, right now I'm going to four. Um, so I do have the fourth one in that, even though the third one just released a couple weeks ago, the fourth one is already written and is currently in editing and it should come out, mm. uh, I would hope by Easter. I have a tentative release date of April 3rd for that one. Um, and as I mentioned, I am writing a book zero, a book, a book, a novella, uh, like a, a long short story or short novella, uh, book zero for that, um, that follows the mm -hmm. parents, um, their mom and dad and their love story. So in that sense, there may end up being five. I don't know. I wouldn't mind having more in the series. I don't, there's no, perf there's no um, other character outstanding though to write about. So I'm not sure mm -hmm. how I'd do it if I did. So, yeah. Yeah. So if that one's ending, do you have another series that's in conjuring up in your brain that's that you're thinking about? Spoiler <laughs> alert. Spoiler alert. Who's a fan. I never, <laughs> no, I, I, that's yes, 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 I do. In fact, I have, I've been trying to like narrow it down to what I want to do next. Um, I think that the next step will be, uh, I wrote a novella in the House of Oak series. It's not paranormal. It's just straight Regency set in I think 1816 or something um anyway I think I don't think I, I get my rights back for that book I published it through a publisher uh and I will my next project will be lengthening that book we'll be turning it into uh -huh. a full-length novella I liked the plot of that I think it will make a fun 
um, full length book. So I'll be doing that. I expect that that shouldn't take too long. I hope I would have that out um, by May or so. And then from there, I'm not quite sure. I actually, oh, this is my problem. I've had like this contemporary romance in my head for so long, like a chiclet, um, mm -hmm. contemporary romance kind of thing. And it would be set in Scotland. It, there's nothing paranormal about it at all. And I've, I've had it in my head for so long. And I just, it doesn't really fit well into what I write. And so I've been debating mm -hmm. whether I wanted, if I wanted to be that self-indulgent just to write something that maybe only I would love. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, just because the characters call to me. Um, but I have outlined a five book a straight Regency um, series that would probably mm -hmm. have tie-ins with Scotland and uh, would just follow it. I haven't, Oh, have I named? I can't remember if I've even named the series yet. I had I had a bunch of titles for it. the The basic concept of that one um, is well, I'm not going to give anything away. Basically, it's five men whose lives um, who come from all different walks of life and have all different histories, but are um, but are bound together by a specific incident. and um, mm -hmm. And so it's basically following each one of their five stories, but at the same time, there'll be this recurring theme of trying to understand fully the incident that bound them together. Um, and everything that occurred, oh. each story will include more of that incident. So, um, but it's all Regency, but it's fun. Um, basically what I did, is I, I did is I had all these ideas for Regency stories and I, um, I took each story and I took basically the hero of each story and I said, okay, so here are all these guys coming from massively different walks of life. Um, some are poor, some are noblemen. Um, how, what, what kind of scenario could I come up with where they would have logically been in the same place at the same time? Um, mm -hmm. and where they actually could all be connected to each other. And so I came up with a storyline for that. So, so that's, cool. I think it'll be fun. So, yeah, man, I get exhausted just hearing it all. I can't even imagine producing that much in such a short period of time. But I think the interesting thing too, for me is, is that when you create things like this and you produce things that really, I mean, are you, right? You're the one who thinks up the story. You're the one who creates the characters and you develop it and you put so much time and effort into it. And then you put it out there into the world for people to consume. Is that just terrifying? You know, um, yes and no. I think to answer that question, you have to back up 10 years. Um, and that I've been doing that a lot with my photography for a lot, a lot of years. And, mm -hmm. and initially with, with the photography, of course it was hard. You put your heart and soul into a session and then you send it to the client and the client is like, um, well, that's nice, but I really don't like how little Timmy looks in picture four because he has his like sort of happy smiley face, but I wanted his super happy, happy smiley face. And could, is there one where we have a super happy, happy smiley face? And like, they're just nitpicking apart. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I don't know what Timmy's happy smiley face is like i don't have a clue for mm -hmm. that so after and then i also submitted a ton of pictures of print competitions and stuff over the years and you know and they're brutal they're very very brutal about uh mm -hmm. your abilities as, as a photographer and i think that if i hadn't spent 10 years doing that then i think that mm -hmm. yeah putting out that first book would have been brutal uh but because i'd already kind of come to grips with the fact that anybody who makes a living off of their art you have to, at some point, disassociate the commercial aspect of your art from what you do personally for yourself. Um, if you continue to hold on to this sort of idea that it's my art and it's my baby and I don't know what I'm going to do, you're, you will burn. Mm -hmm. You will burn and crash and you will not 
survive more than a year in the business. Um, if you are able to separate your emotional feelings from your art and not have an ego in it and just basically say, look, it's a commercial product. I want to make it better. Then you'll do just great. Um, and that, and that doesn't just go for putting a book out in published form. It goes from taking, you know, feedback from editors. Like, you know, you'll, oh my gosh, I, I have had people say the meanest things like in editing about, uh, you know, a draft of the book. Like, this is just horrific. Like, you know, get back to me when you have a decent story to tell me, you know, kind of things. And, and that's from the editors who are supposed to be like in my ball court. And, mm -hmm. and you have to get to the point where you can take that kind of feedback and just go, okay, it's going to make it better. And that's good. And, and you just own your mistakes and own the fact that it's not perfect and, and take a step forward and make it better. I, I think that mm -hmm. the ability to take constructive criticism, mean criticism, hurtful criticism isn't really helpful, but constructive criticism mm -hmm. is invaluable. And you need to be able to be humble enough to take the constructive criticism, own it, instead of letting your pride dig in and be like, but, 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 you know, and mm -hmm. wanting to pick apart why you made the decisions you did. And I think once you can do that, uh, your work will improve tremendously because you're, you're willing to learn and improve as you go along. Mm hmm. That's fascinating. I, just, I really like that, how you worded that. And I think that that is so true. It's all a process, right? It doesn't have to be perfect, like to be good and for people to yeah. enjoy it. Plenty of people like to go to get a McDonald's hamburger as opposed to a gourmet <laughs> hamburger, you know? <laughs> so well, like, I'm not saying that your books are like McDonald's. No. I'm not saying that, but you know what I mean? Like it, Oh yeah. there's so many different, there's so many different tastes and people that like different things that if you just happen to hit one person that doesn't like it, it doesn't mean that it's not worth anything. And really the worth comes from us, right? I mean, yeah. I would look at you and be like, well, I've written no books <laughs> and I probably will never write a book. So, wow, that's just amazing that you're able to do this. So I know that you're self-published, correct? Yes, I am. And so how was that process? Did you never find a publisher that would pick you up or was it just not cost efficient or how did that come to be? You know, that's a really good question. Initially, um, when we started down this path uh, in 2014, um, self-publishing had been around for several years and Amazon in particular makes it very, very easy to self-publish um, your own work. Um, you know, I think every person has to decide if, you're, if you want to pursue writing, I think that you have to make decisions as to whether or not you're going to become self-published or try to pursue a publisher. Uh, the decision mm -hmm. is is not straightforward. It depends on the genre. I am adult romance. That tends to do very, very well self-published. Uh, and more and more traditional publishers are sort of relinquishing that market to the indie authors. Uh, if you mm -hmm. are, say, young adult or middle grade, um, like younger kids, I think going through a publisher is still very, very wise. Uh, any, anything that's not geared toward adults, I think, is more difficult. Mm -hmm. Indie published just because children don't control the money to buy the book. Does that make sense? And so I think it's mm -hmm. much more difficult, um, whereas a publisher will usually get you into schools and um, and in front of the kids more so uh, than, mm -hmm. say, Amazon could. Uh, but aside from that, they're really the only reason is to go through a publisher if you uh, are working with adult fiction is that if you just really don't feel like you have the technical expertise 
to deal with making a cover, to deal with formatting your book. Amazon does not do that for you. You have to make your own cover. You have to, or hire it made. You have to uh, format your own book uh, for Kindle, or you have to hire it formatted. In my particular mm -hmm. instance, um, you know, I, or I will also, a publisher will provide editing as well, professional editing. Well, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, formal, former English faculty, I have endless number of people that I can tap for editing. That's not hard. I don't need an mm -hmm. outside someone to provide me with that. Uh, mm -hmm. I can create my own book covers. Um, I've designed all of my own covers for all my books, for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Although I, they're not your photographs, which I find shocking. Yes, I know, right? <laughs> and maybe with this, maybe if I do my Regency series, I will actually um, just pay some models and hire the clothes and shoot it all myself. The reality is stock yeah. photography, it's actually cheaper. If I can find the right images, it's just cheaper to buy the stock mm -hmm. images than to find the models, because here's the thing, I have to find a model, I have to pay them, I have to pay a hairstylist, I have to pay to rent clothes if I'm doing period stuff. Um, I have to mm -hmm. pay a makeup artist, and then I have to find a location, which I may have to pay for the location, and by that point, I'm into the whole thing, just my cost, like $500, $600, and, mm -hmm. and, then, and then stock photography starts to look really attractive <laughs> by the time <laughs> I get to that point. So, um, right. yeah, so I have done that, but... Yeah, anyway, so as far as formatting the books for Kindle, um, my husband is a programmer, so he formats my books. So there was no reason, mm -hmm. uh, typical reason to go through a publisher. Uh, when it comes to um, publishers, they will do some marketing for you, but honestly, 95% of the marketing you can do yourself, and then you're not trying to deal mm -hmm. with a go-between. Um, and also, right. you earn significantly more money. So Whereas with Amazon, I might see, you know, 60 or 70% of the list price in revenue with a publisher, mm -hmm. I might see 5% of that of wow. as my revenue. Yeah. As the, as the author. So, yeah. um, so cost wise, you basically, you may sell less as an indie, but I only have to sell 30% as many books as I would through a traditional publisher in order to make the same amount of money. And I've, mm -hmm. I've really enjoyed it. I, it's not a decision I've regretted. Um, I have had a couple novellas that I've um, done for a small house publisher in Utah. And that's been great. Um, they, they've been wonderful to work with. And uh, it's been it's kind of opened me up to a new audience. So I haven't regretted doing that either. Um, I'm not opposed to doing both. I think actually, if you can, hybrid is good. Is what they, It was what it's called when you both do traditional mm -hmm. publishing as well as indie publishing. Um, because it gives you a wider reach and that's really all you want as an author is to get your book in mm -hmm. books in front of as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. So are you just rolling in the cash? Oh yeah. We're just like <laughs> shelling it out. No, I'm so sorry. If you wanted to become an author, to become wealthy. Um, yeah, don't just don't No, there, there's so much more money in photography than there is in, in being an author. It is, it's a, it's a tough, tough business. It's hard. It is hard to make money. It's hard. Um, especially I think, I mean, I, I think I do well, um, in mm -hmm. the, uh, between what I make as an author and as well as investments, we have, uh, some investments in the States. Um, but between those two things, it is enough for us to, to live comfortably, uh, here in Scotland. Uh, and I'm very, mm -hmm. very grateful for that. But, um, yeah, it's not, authoring has never been <laughs> the road mm -hmm. to riches that, mm -hmm. that some people would think it is. Yeah, but you are the primary breadwinner in your home, yeah. correct? So you bring in the primary, you know, the money for with your photography and with your your books. And so what has that experience been like? And how 
because it's kind of a reversal, a role reversal in a lot of ways. You know, the man is usually the breadwinner, the primary breadwinner in a home. Um, so what has that experience been like? Is that really high pressure when you're trying to create um, like books? Does that is that a main driver? Like, what has that been like for you? You know, it is. Oh, you know, it's a good question. Nothing is perfect, obviously. And and I must say that, you know, my husband worked worked a traditional job for a lot of years. Um, he was a manager, product manager uh, for Ancestry.com for a number of years. And he did quit his sort of um, mainstream job to to work with our photography business. Uh, the photography business, we as I said, we do uh, inner, like trainings, photography training, but we also um, have a shop where we sell uh, plugins and that sort of thing for photoshop so he was very very helpful for a lot of years and we and he, we still work side by side but as i pulled out of the photography more and more um it's kind of left him with less and less i guess you could say uh, to do on the business side of things uh it's been a pro and a con i've loved 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 and my husband and i have a fantastic working relationship i know some mm-hmm. married couples are are always I don't know they they, they <laughs> I've, I've had more than one person say to me I would kill my husband if I had to be with him all day long um, mm-hmm. and and I can certainly understand how that is my husband and I are kind of like that with our children <laughs> we're like can we just be together and you guys can go somewhere else so I love my kids don't get me wrong but um, yeah so it, it was great I mean it was it was different I have to say um, I had a I had our youngest in 2008 which was about the time my husband and, and I started working full time and it was fascinating to to see him actually have the experience of being home with a little baby a lot um and mm-hmm. I think you know he's very nurt- my husband's much more nurturing than I am and he I think absolutely loved it he loved that he actually got to see all those little baby milestones and everything that the little kids go through that I think a lot of men miss and mm-hmm. so I think he really valued that um I, I think it's interesting um, to see how uh, how the burden becomes lighter, I think, when it's shared, uh, when, it, mm-hmm. when we're talking about um, family home life and that kind of thing. Um, I do know that one of the things that a feminist talk a lot about is um, the emotional burden uh, or like the mental burden that women carry that, that um, I don't think we really pay enough attention to. Uh, the mm-hmm. fact that there are a lot of jobs in the house that need to be done, and we always talk about the husband helping out around the house or whatever. But the problem with that mm-hmm. terminology is that it implies that I'm that, that if my husband's helping me, that I'm the manager. I'm the one mm-hmm. that's delegating these responsibilities. And quite frankly, being the manager is exhausting. And and that's what mm-hmm. I think feminists a lot of times, a lot of literature is referring to is this mental weight that a lot of women carry because they're the manager of the household. So I'm the one mm-hmm. that has to know how much laundry needs to be done. I'm the one that has to know where all the kids have to be and when they have to be there. I'm the one that has to know and manage what food is in the house. When will the food be consumed? When does the food need to be replaced? When do the kids need new shoes? When do the kids need haircuts? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the dentist appointments, mm-hmm. doctor's appointments. And that wait after a while, sure, I can delegate it. But oh my goodness, can I just stop having to be like the delegation as well? Like the delegation is like mm-hmm. 95% of the battle sometimes is just figuring out mm-hmm. what to do. Um, and mm-hmm. it was really nice for a lot of years and still is to share that delegation burden with my husband where it's like he mm-hmm. totally has taken over like the laundry and the kids lessons and like all the extracurricular stuff that my kids do. And on any given mm-hmm. day, I don't even have a clue. And in fact, it was humorous. This was actually when we were still back in the States last year. 
no mm-hmm. was it here oh i think it was here in scotland oh my gosh my 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 little guy's teacher was aghast it was funny um mm-hmm. she asked me a question about like he and like, my little guy's schedule and i just was like i have no idea i'll have to ask my husband i don't keep track of that and she was just like what <laughs> kind of mother are you that you don't uh-huh. know that about your child's schedule and i'm like i'm sorry i don't have i am not responsible for that mental load anymore i was smart enough to off that so right. he's in charge of that no so the flip side of that, of course, is that uh, going back to the original question, um, there is a lot of pressure and I definitely mm-hmm. feel um, a lot of stress if I make a poor decision, like um, I'm going to work on this book. Like, OK, so we I joke about the fact well, I didn't joke, but it took me 10 months to write book three for Lightning, mm-hmm. Lightning Struck, Brothers Maldetti book three. And oh, mm-hmm. my goodness, half the reason why it took so long is we did move four times. But um, one of the other reasons it took so long is that I just didn't do a thorough enough pre-writing um, and I had a couple initial um, glitches uh, I want to say with the plot and those took mm-hmm. months to iron out and it was a mistake on my part and uh, and I learned a lot from it and I definitely learned a few things that I need to do differently each time that I sit down to do my mm-hmm. pre-writing on the plots for things um, but it was a costly mistake and and it cost you know mm-hmm. a decrease in revenue for probably three months because of it and mm-hmm. yeah the kind of stuff you just beat yourself up over and and it is hard fortunately my husband is a great guy he never was like how could you have done that like he's not like that at all right. he's he's yeah. oh great but but yeah it is yeah. it is heavy it is a heavy burden um and so has the trade-off but, been worth it do you think the trade-off to like give up the managing of a home to managing more of the finances and being in charge of that have you enjoyed that trade-off you know i think Yes, definitely. I, I will say, I mean, I've always worked. I've never not worked. I think that uh, for me, I need, I I will say, I think that for most women, we feel a need to contribute. We feel a need to have some control, at least for me, I feel the need to have control over all aspects of my life. And I, and I, I, I think that um, I struggle if one aspect is just completely in the, in the dark in the sense that, um, you know, if, if Dave were earning all the money and I was just kind of coming to him begging for, for money for this or for that, um, I think I would mm-hmm. feel bad. I would feel like he's doing all this hard work and I'm not really contributing. And I know a lot of women that feel that way, um, that feel like, and I think that's a natural instinct to want to provide for yourself, to want to be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so has it been worth it? I, I think so. Um, right now, I think we're kind of in another, tra- another transitional stage where, um, where Dave is trying to, to move into um, other programming projects and that kind of thing uh, without mm-hmm. me. But we always knew that this was sort of the end from the beginning. We knew that, that all those years running the business together and everything would result in a point where we had to kind of peel it mm-hmm. apart again. I, I honestly think it's probably been harder on him than it's been on me because he did make some sacrifices for his career. Um, on the flip mm-hmm. side, though, I don't think that he would change either uh, because he was working so hard. I mean, for, for a lot of men, you know, he would leave at six in the morning. He wouldn't get back till eight at night and he would only see mm-hmm. his kids for like 30 minutes a day. And it was just not a life. You know, he mm-hmm. was basically working. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I remember our daughter, she was, um, three at the time that he decided to finally come home and just work from home 
And mm -hmm. um, after we've been home for about a month or so, she turned to him one day and she's like, Daddy, when are you going to go home? And he was like, uh, sweetie, I am home right here. Sit in the living mm -hmm. room. I'm home. And she's like, no, no, you would get up and then you would go home and then you would just come back and you would see us at night right before we went to bed. When are you going to go back home again? And he mm -hmm. was just like, oh, break your heart. You know what I mean? That even right. a little girl didn't realize that, no, I live with you, sweetie, <laughs> you know, because he was working so much all the time. So right. it, I, I feel like it's been, it's been good. It definitely comes with its trade-offs. Nothing is perfect. Everything has its downsides. Um, I will say that uh, I like being in a position where my husband and I can tag team. So if we mm -hmm. hit a rough patch or a rough year, he can step up and go back into a more traditional job or I can step up and move into another job. Uh, as I said, I, I taught technical writing for a lot of years and, um, and I was still teaching kind of through the economic downturn. And I would have these introductory um, letters that students would have to write. And I had a non-traditional student who was older. She was probably even in her maybe early 50s. And she mm -hmm. wrote this letter talking about how her husband had been laid off and they had gone unemployed for a year, but she had never finished her degree. And so she didn't have really any marketable job skills. And, and this line she wrote has always stuck with me. She said, I'm, I'm taking this class and I'm going back to school because I never want to feel so helpless to care for my family ever again. And I was mm -hmm. like, isn't that exactly the truth? that mm -hmm. you know you just don't want to feel helpless you want to feel that you can handle whatever life dishes to you um mm -hmm. and so i think that for me yes there are trade-offs yes there are negative points to it but having that flexibility and feeling like my husband and i we got this you know we're gonna our kids are gonna have food mm -hmm. and we're gonna have a roof over our heads and it's gonna be okay that, i think that's important yeah and it's very empowering i think that it's uh actually essential for who we are and to become who we need to be. I mean, that's kind of how I got started in doing all this and starting the podcast and doing my life coaching was because my husband, there was threats of him getting laid off and there were you know people that did get laid off at his company. And I thought, I have a degree in veterinary technology, but <laughs> I could never support our family on that. Like, so what can I do that I can still, you know, um, be at home with my kids I have had to like put them in preschool, which I think is a good thing for them. I think oh, yeah. it's been a very beneficial thing for them. And it's only two days a week. And what can I do now that I'm not under that pressure that I have to be the breadwinner? But if that ever came upon me, that I would really be able to contribute and be able to help the family. And I think what you said was so beautiful where really it's like you're a partnership in that taking care of your family and providing for them and then it's the burden for both managing the home and providing temporally is not placed on one partner yeah. for each but it's like a partnership that you do together i think that's the awesome. thing that i think my husband and i also talked about it feels natural it feels normal it feels right like it feels like this is the way it should be that we're both mm -hmm. doing this together and we're just kind of tag teaming back and forth. And you're absolutely right. It is empowering. And I think that it needs to be empowering. I think that we need to feel as women that we're not just sort of the hangers on, you know, and riding on, you know, our husband's coattails um, or vice versa, mm -hmm. pulling them along with us. You know, we're going to get up this hill together, mm -hmm. honey. Um, but that we're just kind of running hand in hand and, and moving through life together uh, and, and just yeah. realizing that some years I'm making sacrifices, some years he's making sacrifices. And that's just kind of the give and take, I think, of being married. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think I like that too. It's a give and take. We're always thinking, oh, I want to have balance. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, well, good luck with that because yeah. <laughs> to get something in perfect balance is really hard. Yeah. You can spend so much time and effort, but if you're like, it's just a, it's like a fluid yeah. thing that just kind of gives and takes. That's much more easy to work with and just know this time he's giving more, this time I'm giving more. We're just huh. going to work together. So in my last question for you, because this has been an awesome interview. I've just loved everything that you've said. You are somebody to me that really encapsulates living their life on purpose <laughs> and like going after their dream and making their dream come true. So what are some lasting lessons that you might have to share for the listeners today on, on doing that and the importance of doing that? I think the that? first thing I have to say is the life choices. I mean, I obviously, obviously picking up your whole family and moving to Scotland is not for everybody or, or moving anywhere. And I don't think that it's necessarily right for everybody. I think you have to, I think some people are like, you know, might feel like, well, I'm, I'm okay with my life just living here with my family and my friends and my, I don't want to say my mm -hmm. comfort because it makes it sound like you're complacent because I don't think you are. And, and I don't think that that's wrong. I don't think that that's bad. I don't think that that's less than in any way. It's just, I think if, if anything, this, this situation has shown me that, life is different, but it's not necessarily better or worse or whatever. I think that especially uh, with my brother uh, passing away so young as he did, mm -hmm. he, I think that it really brought home to me the fact that a lot of times we live for a future that may never come and not mm -hmm. to be morbid and not to think, oh, we're all going to die young. But I think that so many people uh, live and work toward a retirement or something um, that may never actually come to fruition, that illness or death or just changing circumstances, all it takes is one bad day to completely alter mm -hmm. your life. You know, one bad car accident, one, one bad diagnosis, uh, one unexpected downturn, and the life mm -hmm. trajectory that you thought you were on is forever altered. And mm -hmm. that's not to be a downer, but I think, it's, and I don't want to be like, it's carpe diem and we're all going to seize the day and we're just <laughs> making it do with what we are. But, but, right. but I think that there are things that we can do to live in the here and now and stop living in the past um, and dealing with things that you can't change because they're past and gone. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, perhaps living for a future that may never come that, oh, we'll do that next year when we have more money, or, oh, we'll do that when we retire, or, oh, when the kids are gone, everything will be so great, or, oh, when my youngest mm -hmm. is in school, then life will be great, or, oh, when my oldest starts thriving, then life will be great. You know what I mean? Like, always waiting mm -hmm. for something to happen down the road that somehow will change everything we're doing without realizing that it's now. Life is now. Mm -hmm. Life is happening now. And, mm -hmm. and why aren't we doing now? And so that was one of the things that my husband and I sat down with. One of the reasons why he even decided to quit his job um, and there has been obviously financial sacrifice. And I, it's interesting. I, I had some friends who were older and they obviously, they were definitely um, the freewheeling, you know, free spirited kind who had kind of mm -hmm. lived their life like halter skelter. And they mm -hmm. were uh, probably in their, you know, mid fifties at the time and just absolutely destitute, like no job, mm -hmm. not, not a whole lot going on, but, oh, they were so rich in life experience. And it seems weird. Cause I think that most people would look at them as a cautionary tale <laughs> and be like, don't be mm -hmm. like those guys. But I looked at them and I remember actually sitting with my husband and like with tears in my eyes when we were talking about him quitting his job and the fact that he was just kind of burned out and he hated never seeing the kids. And I remember just saying mm -hmm. to him, sweetie, 
when 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 I when we talk about where we're going to be when we're in our fifties, I want to be like that couple. If I have to choose between that couple and like other couples I knew, where he was gone all the time at work and she was, you know, had her racquetball club and her language club and her book club. You know what I mean? I'm like, if I have mm-hmm. to choose between those two couples, I want the messy couple. I want the messy life. Um, I want mm-hmm. the life where it was really well lived. Um, and yeah, we're kind of struggling as we get older. Um, versus the life that is safe and I won't say safe it's not necessarily safe but the life that um where we're so scared to take a risk that um Mm -hmm. that we just kind of basically end up working our life away and never actually living it um now obviously we're trying to be smarter than that I don't want to end up destitute Mm -hmm. in my 50s and (laughs) no job and no money no house and no nothing like I I hope I I, I'm not saying that you live life with this laissez-faire attitude um but at a certain point you have enough money to live and you have enough money to move forward and you have enough money to be. And, and I think that you, when you hit that point, you just have to say, this is enough and I'm okay Mm -hmm. with this. I'm okay without having the big American dream and the big, huge house and the big, huge car and the big, you know, the expensive clothes and the expensive blah, blah, blah. Um, Right. And I think that's kind of just where we landed um, and why we made the decisions that we did. Oh, so great. So awesome. I just, I love all of it. I could talk to you for hours. So, <laughs> but for my listeners, so they're not like, okay, when is this going to end? Oh, yeah, right. um, I think we will say goodbye for now, but I will most likely probably have you on again because I think Me you're too. a woman that has many good insights to share. And I just love hearing other people's perspectives and points of view. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today with us and thank you um, for having me i'm gonna tell everybody go get the house of oak series and the brothers malady Mal- maldetti maldetti <laughs> pronounce that right <laughs> so because you're amazing and i know it's going to be a great read for everybody so thank you nicole thank you wasn't that interview just amazing thank you nicole thank you for your willingness to be open to be able to share your true feelings and experiences as you have not only moved across the world basically to another country and experienced that with your family but also the beautiful gift that art of your photography and your writing has been not only in your life but in the life of your family and just how you have really been an example to so many of living your life on purpose thank you thank you i hope that you will come again and that we can talk to you again here on the podcast Okay, everybody, if you enjoyed that interview as much as I did, make sure that you are on my email list so that I can give you a photo of Nicole's and that you can be entered into the drawing for one of her amazing novels. All right, we will see you next week, and I hope you all have a fabulous week. Bye-bye.